Hey, Leading Learning listener, if you represent a membership organization looking for ways to expand your online course catalog rapidly with high quality content, we have good news. At leadinglearning.com AMA, you can find out how to make online training from the American Management Association available to your learners. Through a partnership between AMA and Tagoras, the parent company of Leading Learning, you can give your learners access to more than 70 e-learning modules covering essential business topics ranging from leading and innovating, to managing projects effectively, to working in hybrid teams. For details on how to grow your catalog with courses from a true global leader in management training, visit leadinglearning.com AMA. Lots of training going on right now, and I don't see it slowing down for for a very long time. It should it should actually become a way of 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 society's life, if you will. But you know, we believe that as adult learners, right? I'm Jeff Cobb. I'm Salisa Steele, and this is the Leading Learning Podcast. Welcome to episode 260 of the Leading Learning Podcast, which features a conversation with Cassandra Blassingame. This is the third episode in a seven-part series on the surge of the third sector of education. Cassandra Blassingame is CEO of the International Accreditors for Continuing Education and Training, or ISET, which is based in Sterling, Virginia. She started her career in 1998 in the continuing education and training space, and in addition to leading ISET, she's currently a doctoral candidate in the adult education program at the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Cassandra describes herself as an adult educator and an adult learner. Jeff spoke with Cassandra in December 2020. Can you tell us a little bit more about uh, ISET, uh, the work it does? Um, and I know you're kind of new there too, so maybe you know a little bit about the the role you're taking on and, and, and what your sort of day to day activities look like there. So I came on board um, officially as CEO in January uh, of this year. Um, what a time to switch jobs, <laughs> considering you know no one really knew what was coming you know uh, for us in in March. Uh, just you know, two and a half months, you know, uh, later after I, I took post, but I have um, a little bit of a history with ISET. So I started about three years ago as a commissioner and our commissioner teams are, are basically our review teams that, um, that, that award the accreditation. So they perform um, the review process and then go on site or now we're, we're actually conducting virtual site visits um, in, in order to uh, uh, maintain operations, um, make sure that uh, training organizations are moving forward in their business plans um, and things like that. So we kind of had to do a little bit of a pivot then. Um, but I came on as a commissioner three years ago. And then last year, I was invited to serve on the board of directors. And um, during uh, my short time from September to December, um, we were looking for a new CEO. And um, and I just decided to throw my name in the hat. And, and quite honestly, I was practicing. So um, I got the job. And and so the current staff said, um, yeah, yeah, based on your reason for applying for the job, you know, um, you, you can't practice anymore. You're no longer allowed to practice. So coming on board um, as CEO in January and um, and and while ISET's been around for, you know, uh, 30 years plus in terms of its activity in developing the CEU, um, 
it was a part of, it was managed by an association management company. So we're three years independent. It's almost like starting a new business, um, but yet not. So there's a little bit of a, you know, kind of a um, a, a psyche to it all because you think, you know, we've been around for so long, you know, why are we doing this? And then you kind of realize, okay, so it was managed, you know, and now it's up to us to make sure that we are strengthening that foundation. So a lot of this year has been spent doing that. Um, we are an accrediting body. And while we're an accrediting body, we are also a standards developing organization. Um, and, and, and we accredit uh, training um, organizations across industries, um, including colleges and universities. And we um, are also accredited by ANSI, which is the American National Standards Institute. So we received our charge in short going back to uh, 1970 from the Department of Education to evaluate the feasibility of measuring continuing education and training. And through that study um, under the uh, Council for Continuing Education Unit um, evolved the measurement of one CEU as 10 contact hours. And then we were encouraged by the Department of Education to become a uh, an accrediting body or a standards developing organization, if you will. So that's that's us in in short and what I do here. Great, and and I want to get back to that uh, issue of accreditation uh, here in a little bit because that's so important, obviously, to the work that you do. I I, I do want to ask. Um, just knowing that you know you took on the CEO role, CEO role in January. You weren't on the board all that long before that. Um, and then in March, you know, all of this hit that's going on right now, this, you know, just major disruption. And of course, that's just COVID. There are plenty of other types of disruption going on out there right now. I mean, what what was what's the shift been like for you? You mentioned doing um, virtual accreditations now, or, um, uh, but w- what else has changed as a result of everything that's happened out there this year? Yeah, um, really, the the, uh, the the way we do business has has changed, but it's not just changed for us. It's also changed for um, the industry as a whole. And, and, and of course, those that are seeking the accreditation. And so, um, you know, I, I kind of attribute the ability, you know, to fit to pivot and make the adjustments. Um, not only, you know, with uh, to, to my experience here with ISF, but I've followed the organization since 2006 and was really waiting for a chance to, to be involved with it. And, and that came into fruition in 2017. Um, but I think that, you know, what 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 attributes to that is being a part of the continuing education and training industry and the creativity that is necessary in order for you to be successful in in this industry, you know, by working with, you know, various organizations or training organizations, industries, if you will. Um, and so I think, I think that certainly has attributed it um, to, um, to us being able to make those adjustments um, and work alongside with our training organizations that are also doing the same, having to shift from face-to-face courses to, in um, to online courses. And, you know, we're poised um, to, Um, assist those training organizations or our accredited providers in providing them with guidance around distance learning and how to um, award CEUs to now, you know, um, an online course versus it being face-to-face. So we've, we have uh, been pretty successful in, in, um, in helping um, others with the transition as we're working through it ourselves, but we have um, a really committed group of 
committee members, board members, um, everyone brought their resources, our commission and our council. Um, you know, I've worked with many of them over the last three years. So it's, it's, it's one of them, you know, that sits in this seat and we all knew what it was that we needed. Um, and, and, and not only, you know, the commission and council, the standards council, but also our board. Um, everyone was uniquely just aligned with where we knew this organization had to be taken to and what needed to be done, especially during this year. And now as we get back on track, you know, we're in year two of our strategic plan um, and, and things are moving along, you know, pretty nicely, but, you know, not to be fooled, um, you know, things are still very, very up in the air and, um, but, you know, we, we're, we're ready for it. Well, so you and I are, are talking now um, as part of a podcast series that we're doing on the third sector uh, of education, what we call the third sector. And that's that sector made up of providers who serve adult lifelong learners after they finish their formal degree granting education. And you've already been touching on, on this uh, to a certain extent, but I'll, but I'll ask it again just to make sure we're kind of coming at it with all the nuances and, and perspectives that, um, that we can. Um, so basically, you know, where do you interact or have you interacted with that third sector of education? And, and that would be both professionally, and you've talked a little bit about ISET, uh, you know, working uh, with training providers. Um, also, personally, you talked about you're, you're doing some uh, additional uh, lifelong learning right now as well. So can you talk a little bit more about each of those, you know, how, how you interact with training providers, how you act, interact with just this this idea of this being a sector in, in, in general, um, you know, that uh, it's this body of adult lifelong learners that, that have to be served. Um, and then you as one of those adult lifelong learners. Yeah, sure. So um, I've inter interacted with this, this sector my entire career, um, you know, coming into it. I started at a trade school where there was a room full of adults that were looking for um, a career change and knew that they could do that you know, through a two-year program um, at a trade school, um, I, I moved into continuing education and training um, at the community colleges, and that's really where I lived and then moved, you know, into four-year schools. And even though I moved into some four-year schools where I had traditional academic um um, responsibilities, there was still a hand in the continuing and professional studies realm of where I was. And so I was able to kind of connect and, and help um, institutions see the necessity of industry influencing the academic side of the house. Um, you know, it's, it's, during, during the, the late 80s when they did that, you know, a nation at risk, you know, study, and I don't think that people reference this whole activity enough as to why we kind of are where we are in continuing ed um, and in education period. But there was this movement that had everyone flocking to a four year school and to go to a community college or a trade school was mm, you weren't necessarily seen in the in, in the best light. And 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 that was really unfortunate because we lost a lot of our you know, essential manufacturing um, skills and, and in terms of those trades and people knowing how to use this machinery. Um, and so there was the, the, the flock. But then industry all of a sudden, you know, was disconnected or the, the, the academy, if you will, disconnected itself from industry and thought, oh, people just need degrees. They just need this theoretical. And, and while, you know, there's a, a large faction of people that can, you know, get by on that and, and know how to apply that theory to 
the practical, um, there was still this, this group of folks that was kind of left out there. And so I have enjoyed working in the continuing education and training space because one, I enjoy the creativity. I love making the connection. I love helping people partner and see how they can be um, uh, a bigger part of, you know, what's, what's happening and, and serve people. Um, and I think that that's, that's my attraction to it. Um, personally, I, I didn't start my master's program until five years into my career. And it literally became a, a matter of putting a name with a face. And so I became that uh, person who was seeking those credentials and, and now finishing up a PhD. But even in, in, my, in my growing roles as, you know, as, as a chief executive officer or uh, a vice president of academic affairs or pro, you know, whatever my, my job is, I still need those practical skills that I don't want a three credit hour course for. I just need an eight hour seminar, a two day course, a one hour webinar. That's going to give me something that I can take right away and apply it so that I can maintain my competitiveness in the field that I'm in um, or, you know, within the company that, that I'm, I'm working for. If you're looking for a partner to help you deliver the knowledge and skills your learners need, check out our sponsor for this series. For nearly 20 years, Blue Sky eLearn has been transforming the way organizations deliver virtual events and educational content. Blue Sky's customized cutting edge solutions connect hundreds of organizations to millions of learners worldwide. These include their award-winning learning management system, PATH LMS, webinar and live streaming services for short events to multi-day virtual conferences, and learning strategy and development solutions. These robust, easy-to-manage solutions allow organizations to easily organize, track, and monetize educational content. We're truly grateful to Blue Sky eLearn for helping to make this series possible, and we encourage you to find out more at blueskyelearn.com. Now, back to the conversation with Jeff and Cassandra. If you were to imagine kind of a, a continuum, you know, across all of the, the different providers that are out there with um, one end labeled hodgepodge, you know, kind of a, kind of a mess, I guess, uh, at, at, at one end, and the other end is partnership. Um, what, in your uh, view, is the level of awareness that the different providers have of the other types of providers in the, the third sector, you know, and, and how well are they all working together? So where on that hodgepodge to partnership spectrum is the third sector a, a, as a whole and, and where should it be? Mm-hmm. Well, I think that um, this year has certainly um, created some some opportunities for the partnering, if you will. I, I think that more so now than ever, um, providers are, are aware of each other. Um, they want to know what um, they, they want to know what each other is doing. Okay. And, and how they're managing, you know, for one. And so there's, there's a partnership within itself, um, in terms of just peer support, but then you may have, you know, a medical, you know, um, provider who is looking to, you know, um, make a, a financial part of their business or training, 
a lot more robust, you know, and and in, instead of, you know, perhaps hiring another person on board, you know, they may elect to, to partner with, you know, um, a finance related training organization. Um, and I think that we'll start to see more and more of, of, of that um, um, in in the future. And, and those are the kinds of things that I see happening. Those are the things that, that were pretty um, standard, you know, as I came into the field of continuing education and training back in the late 90s. And it's essential. It is essential to survival. It's essential to, you know, reaching various audiences, you know, the, the uh, meaningful partnership, you know, idea um, can be very, very, you know, lucrative in terms of, um, you know, financial success, business stability. Um, but then also, you know, the reason why we are in business is so that we can make sure that, you know, our, uh, the business of the world, you know, continues um, through developing these professionals or helping them skill up or, you know, um, 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 acquire, you know, skills. Um, so I think that, you know, um, um, those kinds of partnerships, you know, are prevalent. Um, and I think that uh, for the most part, most of most training providers are are aware. There are, you know, things that affect individual training providers and those things that affect them, whether it's technology or the, you know, um, um, integration of another um, topic area um, are things that drive those partnerships and the thought of, you know, seeking out one another. Um, technology is also a big one. And it's one that I get concerned about, especially for our smaller training organizations, that they may or may not necessarily have the resources to keep that infrastructure, but they may have some really, really good content. And, and so I encourage, you know, um, providers to seek those partnerships out. And, and when you're seeking them out, that it's, that it's not so one-sided that you get swallowed up, but that, that it's a win-win, not only for you and the other provider, but also for the people who are seeking out the training. Mm. So it sounds like it, from your perspective, then, um, partnership is relatively strong in, in the sector and getting getting stronger and there are probably some driving reasons for it getting stronger is that a, a fair assessment I, I, I believe yes it is yes it is I do believe that and that may relate well to this next question which I you know I suspect I know your answer to but uh, but it's good, just gonna be interesting to, to see how you respond to it and and that's you know that our view is that this whole third sector has been growing in size and importance um, over the past few decades, and, and probably dramatically uh, more so in, in the last several years, we were talking before we hit record about how you're starting to see you know the phrase lifelong learning um, mm-hmm. come up in headlines and in papers. You never used to see that uh, uh, before. Um, so, what's your perspective? I mean, do you do you agree that it's been growing in importance? And to the extent that that you do, what do you think are the key factors contributing to that growth? Okay, um, you know, I think that. Not only are there people with, you know, um, bachelor's, master's, doctoral degrees that are seeking out continuing and professional training for various reasons, but I think that we're going to see some significant growth because you have um, trade schools, technical schools that are also increased their enrollment. And so that group of educated people is growing as well. Um, Institutions like Rankin Technical College in St. Louis, I don't know if you're familiar um, at all, but they combine their two and four year degrees with apprenticeships 
and other certifications and licensures. So once these kids graduate from college, not only do they have their degree credentials, but they also have these other credentials that will con- that will will require them to maintain and continue to learn things that are technical and technically related to their various trade. And that's all going to evolve due to technology anyway, you know. And so um, students who graduate with those, you know, they, they go on to obtain those licenses and then have to, you know, use that um, uh, other providers to maintain those licensures through, through continuing education. Um, trade organizations like the American Gear Manufacturers Association, which is my former employer, I took them through the accreditation process, but they train engineers. And oftentimes engineers hold those PE licenses, the professional engineer licenses. And so for a faction so small, like gear design, where do they go for professional development and training things that they need to actually apply to these life cycles in development of gears and, you know, using metals and lubrications and, um, and things like that. So it's, it's a very small yet very critical faction. If you think about gears as they relate to, you know, really the world moving and it, and it moves by gears, that faction of the manufacturing section uh, sector. And then also social organizations like, you know, the National Urban League or, you know, um, other, you know, social awareness type of organizations that provide training to, you know, help underemployed or underskilled people, you know, find entry level jobs or jobs into, you know, an industry where they are uh, partnering um, and in particular St. Louis. So I have an affinity for St. Louis, but the Urban League in St. Louis, they they partner with various industries that um, that that have these kind of, you know, um, entry level jobs that are, are helping people earn, you know, livable wages. So is it growing Yes, it's going to continue to grow, you know, because they're they're just pods of of people, you know, kind of everywhere. Um, but in particular, the trade school graduates will continue. You'll still have your, um, you know, professional degree um, folks continuing on, and then you'll 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 have people who are, you know, maybe even right now out of work that need to skill up and um, and and acquire new skills to. Um, to learn to, to, to get that next job. Um, so lots of, lots of training going on right now and I don't see it slowing down for, for a very long time. Uh, it should, it should actually become a way of, of, of society's life, if you will. But, you know, we believe that as adult learners, right? What do you see as some of the major opportunities for the third sector right now? And then, you know, to the extent that, um, that you can uh, maybe highlight some specific ways in which ISET is, uh, is working to address those opportunities. Okay. Um, so again, you know, I think the major opportunities that, um, that exist are the continued growth um, and individuals that will need to be served. And I think that, you know, anyone who is, is, is looking to maybe even start a training organization, you know, um, can really do an environmental scan to really kind of see, you know, what the, what the needs are, you know, that are out there, you know, for, for training. Um, but I also, you know, strongly encourage, you know, um, partnerships um, um, in, in that as well. But um, I think the, uh, we continue to pay attention to our providers 
um, we're responsive in delivering solutions. Um, we we do um, our our fair share of of surveying um, our accredited providers, and um, and in a way, we've been able to capture some meaningful data. Um, and 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 we actually um, did a couple of surveys this year where we were we were able to provide some. Um, some professional development and and other resources um, in a timely response to everything that was going on um, to our accredited providers. So that's kind of one of the things that we do. We we we're a staff of nine, so we're very small, um, a small organization um, doing a lot of you know big things. But we depend very heavily on our volunteer leaders. Um, and while our commission is you know not necessarily volunteer, you know, they, they work with us through the accreditation uh, processes. Um, they are located all over the world. So we have, um, um, a, you know, a solid international presence um, in, in terms of, um, you know, where our accredited providers are. I think we're in about 21 different countries now. Um, and, and so we're starting to, um, you know, make sure that we are, you know, we have our ear to the ground. Mm-hmm. Um, and we depend pretty heavily on our commission, um, our standards council, who are all professionals in continuing education and training, um, who bring back, you know, a lot of intel that really helps us, you know, to kind of inform the way we do business and the way we're servicing our accredited providers and future um, applicants, uh, you know, for for the accreditation process. Um, our boards and committees, volunteers, but again, mostly um, continuing education um, and training professionals that that also, you know, provide resources and intel, you know, to the industry. So what we do as a small, you know, usually it's about a one person, you know, department with the exception of our accreditation team um, is is make sure that we're taking all of that in and um, and plugging it into our very active strategic plan um, so that we can, you know, maintain our responsiveness um, to the industry. Now, I noticed on um, the ISET website that uh, digital badges are, are highlighted. That seems to be a, a focus for you um, right now. Can you say a little bit more about what kind of opportunity you're seeing there and, um, you know, whether it's badges, whether it's just uh, alternative credentialing in general, and maybe how those dovetail with um, the CEU as a unit of measurement as well? Sure. So the um, open digital badging is a, um, a standard that is developing here at, at ISET. And we're trying to make sure that we're kind of on the on the forefront of that. So we're working um, with a university professor who is, you know, on our training team um, to um, to develop that um, along with a group of um, individuals who have um, developed that, you know, um, um, emerging uh, standard, if you will. Um, and so we have we have really just begun to um, to start to market and um, and and really kind of you know reframe how we are delivering those training courses to make it more meaningful and again um, those changes come you know from informing you know being informed by by industry um, so. Now what we're doing is taking a look at our target audiences and who they are and who is interested in that digital badging, you know, credential. Um, and so we're finding, you know, community college, workforce, you know, technology, you know, IT. Um, those are those are industries that we've yet to tap in terms of marketing and getting this, you know, this, this getting this out. Um, and as it as it connects and, and relates to the CEU, it's really just you know, what we see as kind of another credential 
um, versus, you know, versus an actual CEU, although there may be CEU weight attached to that particular course. But we think that there are people who are interested in, you know, just kind of having those um, certificates, if you will. It's just another format of a certificate. And it, you know, it de- it depends on, you know, who you talk to. Um, I worked in higher ed on both sides of the fence. I didn't necessarily see a place for digital badging on the traditional academic side of the house. I think most people on that side are, I I just need my degree. You know, Uh, if I get a certificate on the way, that's fine if these courses, but I really just need my degree. Whereas, you know, if if people are working on specific skill sets, those benchmarks are not only helpful in helping them to feel achieved and accomplished, but they, you know, also provide a set of, you know, very, very real credentials that are accepted by um, a particular industry. And I think that notion of, uh, as you just put it, very, very real credentials um, feels like an important one right now. Because if you're not in the degree world, for example, and you're getting some form of continuing education, some form of continuing learning, it's helpful for that that validation to be there. So for an employer or whoever might care about that education to know that it that it's valid, that there's some there's some teeth, you know, be, behind it, uh, basically. So related to that, I mean, could you talk a little bit more about the role of accreditation in lifelong learning in the third sector? Um, and, you know, so, for example, the, the, the CEU is uh, that's a that's a, a standard that um, that you have established that you accredit providers of. You know, why in your mind is, is that important? Um, and, and do you see that growing in, in importance um, as there's more and more focus on lifelong learning? Mm-hmm. Um, I do. I do see the growth. You know, I, I, like I said to you earlier before, um, Jeff, I have watched this organization since about 2006 and, and and really was interested in, you know, taking, you know, former institutions that I worked for, you know, through the process even then. And um, and so I'm, I'm very pleasantly dis- surprised to see, you know, the growth that the organization, you know, has experienced even since then, um, not only in number in terms of accredited provider, but the establishment of the standard um, and the accreditation from ANSI that that came, I think, with the first um, standard was accredited, I think, 2006 or seven, something like that. So um, we are on our third version of, of the standard and um, and it continues, you know, to improve at the hands of our commission um, upon, you know, um, um, uh, feedback that we get from our accredited providers that are going through the application process and people that are going through the application process even prior to them, you know, becoming accredited. So, you know, there's definitely um, has been some consistent growth over the years. Where I see that going uh, in the future is um, it continues. Now we're starting to see uh, more colleges and universities um, um, seek our accreditation out. Um, And it's, Primarily, probably, you know, I would I would venture to say that, you know, even when I worked on the on the traditional side of the house, going through regional accreditation experiences, there wasn't really anything that would, you know, um, accredit or, you know, provide some framework for the continuing education side of the house to, you know, operate. And I and the and the ISET 2018 standard um, does just that. 
it provides that framework. It provides, you know, the the background information on training adults and and how you should operate and how to develop a course and what the instructional design should look like. Um, how you know you conduct the business in terms of record keeping and transcripting, um, doing the CEU calculation and making sure that you are providing you know a viable um, and assessed um, um, learning experience for people who are seeking it out. Say an organization is offering continuing education experiences, it wants to be accredited, accredited to provide you know, the, the official CEU uh, to, to go uh, to be earned as part of those experiences. What does a, a, a training and education provider, what do they have to go through to, to become accredited by ISIT? So there, there is an application process, and um, and I'll and I'll start off by saying, you know, what it means to be an accredited provider. Um, having having an accreditation, um, whether it's programmatic or organizational, and we provide a, an organizational um, accreditation, um, it just it, it means that you have a competitive advantage. Um, so if you are in early childhood, you know, or safety, construction, or um, finance. Um, Usually you, um, in order for individuals to to, uh, receive credit for the training courses that they take, they take their professional development courses, you either need to be an authorized provider or be an accredited, you know, body so that that is recognized by that state licensure board. And so that's what the accreditation does for um, for a training organization. It, it it gives them the recognition by you know author, uh, authorized um, industry um, professionals or certifying or licensing bodies that says these folks have followed a standard. They know what they're doing. You know, um, they they become accredited by whether it's ISET, ASSET, or you know, or whomever. They have followed some kind of a framework in order to make sure that their training program is a quality program. Um, what an individual or, you know, a, an organization has to do to become accredited is, um, you know, it's it's strongly encouraged that you, you attend a workshop, um, there you, you purchase the standard and the application and you begin to work through that. And then you would continue on the process by paying the applicable fees and submitting the application to then begin the review process. And the review process usually takes about three months or less. It really just depends on how well um, you have your processes and your policies documented and, um, and, and that you've actually um, um, offered your program for um, at least three months and been in business for at least a year. There are obviously plenty of providers out there who are not doing that, um, who are not accredited, um, who we don't necessarily know what, what standards um, they're adhering to. In many ways, the the world, the, the broader world of uh, adult lifelong learning is a little bit of a wild west, um, which it seems to me you know, could potentially, a threat may be too strong a word, um, but it it can damage, I guess, the ability for lifelong learning to be taken seriously um, by employers and others who are having to kind of gauge it. Um, I guess I'd ask, you know, would, would you, do you see that as a threat uh, at all? Um, you know, is it one you're really trying to address with your work? And then what, 
what other threats are out there right now that um, you know may may stand in the way of the third sector really being appreciated um, and, and and valued to the degree that it, that it could be. I really am not feeling like there are any threats to what it is that we're doing at this point in time. I think that um, the time of threat for continuing education um, has passed. Um, and you and I talked a little bit before how you know um, continue how continuing education has been viewed. You know between you know, it's inception probably, you know, up until maybe about 10 years ago. Um, And now there are schools of continuing and professional studies all over the place. University of Virginia has one. They have a great one. Um, I work there too. (laughs) But, um, but long story short, I I think that the threat is, is, is past or passing. And, um, and just to use an example, um, Clark Atlanta University um, in Atlanta, Georgia, there, you know, with with everything happening in higher education, most schools had to, you know, flip the switch and, and take all of these students virtually. Well, this is a really good example because Clark Atlanta is seeking accreditation. And what they shared with me is that the entire university, the academic side of the house, turned their attention to continuing education. And that was the unit that took the entire university online and supported that with a staff of about five or six people. Um, And so it's an incredible time, you know, and I think that they're probably not the only institution that has thought to do that, but they're the only one that I know. And it would also just make sense for other institutions to, you know, if they don't have that side developed, that they would say, you know what, let's look at the group of people that have been doing this, you know, for a long time and that really have a handle on it. But it speaks volumes, you know, to the leadership of an institution that values and places a lot of value on the continuing education arms of, of the institution. So I think that, you know, not, not only in, in that area, but then when you start looking at industry, you know, across the board, um, I, I think that the threat's passed and I think that there's, you know, a lot of opportunity. We've seen an increase in um, interest and leads. Um, and so, you know, the, the word is out, you know, if you will. And they're starting to look at their peers and they're like, you know, wow, they're accredited. You know, I better do something. Um, and, and, and we've, you know, had testimonies where, you know, people have said it's, it's literally saved their business. So um, it's, it's kind of hard for me to answer that question right now, given everything that's going on and the pivots that are taking place. Um, and I think that people are, are now, you know, like I said, just kind of tapping into that creativity and, um, and, and coming up with solutions and finding that the ISS accreditation in particular um, is, is a viable solution. I think that's such a great point about uh, it has been, I think, in, and, and I've heard of a number of cases or I feel like I've at least read about a lot of cases where this has been sort of a hero moment for the continuing education divisions in higher education because higher education in general is under so much fire right now. You know, the bachelor's degrees in, in particular, and is, is that, you know, worth what it uh, used to be worth all the debt that's associated with it. Um, but those continuing education units, um, certificate programs, those are thriving at a lot of universities and are really pulling a lot of institutions through. So that's a, a great point. Now, when you look out to the, the future, you know, ISF has its plans, uh, obviously. Um, you've talked about some opportunities that are out there. Um, but when you look out to that sort of future of the, the third sector in general, 
what are you seeing? I mean, is it continued growth? Or are there disruptions that are coming? Um, looking into your crystal ball, what, what, what's out there? Well, I don't know if I have a crystal ball, but uh, <laughs> I think the only disruption that, that I can foresee um, will be technology and how technology and the advancement of various industries um, happen. Um, those are the kind of the only disruption. And, and, and quite frankly, it was, you know, it was it was a disruption that actually saved us all, you know, this year by, you know, moving to Zoom. Uh, you know, I'm sure they're very, very happy. <laughs> um, all of the platforms are very, very happy about, you know, the the shift in, in technology and what they've been able to put into place um, to really, you know, to really help people survive. Um, but I think that within within various industries, the uh, the technologies that evolved um, could be um, could be a little bit, bit of a disruptor, like I said, especially for you know smaller training organizations. And and if you look at manufacturing in particular, how you've gone from you know manual machines to CNC machining, and 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 there are some you know manufacturing uh, companies that still use a lot of those manual machines, you know, to um, to to carry out their business. Um, but what happens when you know things get too big? Um, and, and even though you'll need people to skill up and learn how to use those machines, you know, it's, it's not, um, it's not an end all. Um, and so I don't even think that that technology is something that causes or automation is causes people to lose jobs. I think it causes for people to skill up and, and, and you still need someone to maintain and run that machine. (laughs) You might not need two people, but you, but you might need two people, you know, it just depends on, on, on the level of, um, of machinery that you, that you have, but, technology i think is probably the biggest disruptor and uh and and the readiness of various industries to be able to tackle that and and for those who are providing the training providing the education basically those those providers to this third sector um thinking about you know the potential for technology disruption and and maybe other types of disruption um that are going to come along um any any final words of uh, advice or, or or caution you would have for for those who are serving the third sector? You know, I would just say, make sure that your programs are really strong, Um, you know, strengthen them, make sure that you are, you know, doing your due diligence by, um, um, you know, being informed by the industry, whether it's, you know, yourself or subject matter experts. Um, Seek out, you know, some kind of an accreditation, whether it's um, an organizational accreditation or a programmatic accreditation, whatever is going to work for you in order to attract um, um, your constituents to come to you for and, and see you as a leader in, uh, in their, their respective industry. Cassandra Blassingame is CEO of the International Accreditors for Continuing Education and Training. Learn more about IASET at IASET.org. That's I-A-C-E-T dot org. You can find show notes at leadinglearning.com slash episode 260, along with a transcript and a variety of resources related to my conversation with Cassandra. At leadinglearning.com slash episode 260, you'll also see options for subscribing to the podcast. To make sure you don't miss the remaining episodes in this series, we encourage you to subscribe. And subscribing also helps us get some data on the impact of the podcast. And we'd be grateful if you would take a minute to rate us on Apple Podcasts. 
So Lisa and I personally appreciate it, and reviews and ratings help the podcast show up when people search for content on leading a learning business. Go to leadinglearning.com slash Apple to leave a review and rating. And we encourage you to learn more about the sponsor for this series by visiting blueskyelearn.com. Lastly, please spread the word about leading learning. In the show notes at leadinglearning.com slash episode 260, there are links to find us on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook. Thanks again, and see you next time on the Leading Learning Podcast.